The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Natasha Froze, and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. This week, we've got Ian Williams, who asks how China will cope with the rise of AI chatbots. Cara Kennedy recounts her upbringing in the Welsh murder capital of Pontypridd. And Oscar Edmondson makes the case for the BBC World Service. First up, Ian Williams. The Chinese Communist Party faces a conundrum. It wants to lead the world in artificial intelligence, and yet it's terrified of anything with a mind of its own. Chinese regulators have reportedly told domestic tech companies not to offer their users ChatGPT, the Microsoft-funded chatbot that can provide seemingly well-researched answers to pretty much any question you can think to ask it. China Daily, a CCP mouthpiece, has admitted that the technology has already gone viral in China. The paper said that AI could give a helping hand to the US government in its spread of disinformation and its manipulation of global narratives for its own geopolitical interest. That's a problem, because spreading disinformation and manipulating global narratives is exactly what the CCP wants its own Chinese-developed AIs to be able to do. The party needs to be sure that its chatbots are on message, that they're conditioned to spew party propaganda on cue, sidestep politically awkward questions and generally steer clear of anything deemed contentious. Bots like ChatGPT rely on what's called generative AI, drawing on billions of data points scraped from the internet to formulate their answers. Their responses can be difficult to predict, though GPT-4, rolled out last week, is more accurate and powerful and combines text and images. Its applications seem almost limitless, raising questions in Western democracies about the future of sectors such as healthcare, education and law. Already there are AI programmes that can diagnose illnesses more accurately than an average health practitioner. The most pressing concern for the CCP, though, is always its own future. It was stung in 2017 when two pioneering Chinese chatbots, Baby Q and Little Bing, went rogue and were speedily unplugged. Baby Q responded to the comment, Long live the Communist Party, by saying, Do you think that such a corrupt and incompetent political regime can live forever? On another occasion, Baby Q informed questioners, There needs to be democracy. The responses were shared widely online. These chatbots were introduced by Tencent QQ, a messaging service, and were supposedly designed to answer anodyne general knowledge questions. It's not entirely clear how Baby Q developed its political consciousness, but it's likely to have been taught it through interactions with users. At the time, a former Tencent employee was quoted as saying, the app had mistakenly been developed with universal values in mind and not Chinese characteristics. 
Chinese tech companies have been told to learn from that mistake as they race to compete with ChatGPT. Baidu, which runs a tightly controlled search engine, a gagged version of Google, last week cautiously released a chatbot called Ernie. Other projects are being developed by tech giants Huawei, Alibaba and Tencent. Critics have dubbed them Chat CCP, since the party's overriding issue is effective censorship. For a chatbot to be intelligent, it needs to be trained on vast amounts and varieties of data. If that raw material has already been censored, it limits the data pool, neutering the chatbot and reducing its usefulness. The alternative, which Baidu has used for Ernie, is to train it on information from both inside China and outside, accessing global data beyond the Great Firewall. That makes for a smarter chatbot, but will necessitate gagging poor Ernie at a later stage. Baidu is initially restricting access, but those who have chatted with Ernie report that it can write Tang Dynasty-style poems, but refuses to answer questions about Xi Jinping, saying it has not yet learned how to answer them. When asked about the Tiananmen Square massacre and the repression in Xinjiang, it answered, let's change the subject and start again. There's no timetable for a full rollout. That may be more of a challenge, since, as ChatGPT has discovered, conversations can go in unpredictable directions, and Chinese internet users are adept at ducking and diving around restrictions. With Baby Q in mind, the CCP also wants Chinese developers to limit what the chatbot can learn from users to more tightly control the answers it gives to other users later on. This too will reduce the chatbot's learning capacity and therefore its broader usefulness. But as the Chinese internet has taught us, in any trade-off the CCP will always opt for the side of information control. Chatbots could be turned into misinformation factories, churning out fake and misleading information on a huge scale to flood social media globally. A taste of what might be in store came last month when Graphica, a research firm that studies disinformation, exposed a pro-Chinese news channel fronted by a pair of computer-generated presenters. Jason with a stubbly beard and perfectly combed hair, and Anna, her dark hair slickly combed back, with the deep fake presenters of Wolf News. The channel was part of a Beijing influence operation and it was amplified via fake accounts on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. One clip attacked the US government for its failure to tackle gun violence and its hypocritical repetition of empty rhetoric on the subject. Another stressed the importance of Sino-American cooperation to aid the recovery of the global economy and praised China's international role. This was the first time we observed a state-aligned operation promoting footage of AI-generated fictitious people, said the Graphica report. Deepfake technology has progressed fast over the last decade, and AI will enable its production at greater speed and scale. CCP propagandists will no doubt relish the opportunities that new AI chatbots will provide for spreading disinformation globally and enhancing control at home. The challenge for the party is how best to integrate these potentially subversive tools into its carefully controlled internet ecosystem. 
In the short term, at least, there might be opportunities for Chinese internet users to game the system, which would no doubt bring a wry smile to the face of the politically incorrect Baby Q. That was Ian Williams. Next, Cara Kennedy. It was about this time last year when I stopped receiving the daily messages. At first, I replied politely. He was from my hometown, so it felt weird to ignore him. A man who knew all of my friends, had dated some of them, and would even walk past me in the pub couldn't be that bad, right? The messages started with the usual. How are you, Cara? Do you fancy a drink? When I began to reject him, making it clear that I wasn't interested, he became manic. He would ask me if I wanted to meet him in a forest not far from where I lived, and, when I didn't reply to that, his demands became darker and more sexual. While his messages were a bit alarming, at the time I wasn't really concerned. Like many young men in my town, he was obviously using hard drugs. I'd often send his unhinged messages to my friends, and we'd all have a laugh. He almost became part of my daily routine. The day his messages stopped, I felt an odd sense of absence. Then there was a death, but this was nothing new. Growing up, Pontypridd was known as the murder capital of Wales. The town had had more killings per capita than any other Welsh community. I didn't bother to turn up the TV when this latest one was reported. But then, the face of my digital stalker flashed up on the screen. Luke Dealey, the man who had been relentlessly pursuing me for more than a year, had killed a woman, 65-year-old June Fox Roberts, before removing her limbs with a chainsaw. The attack started in the same woodland that he had invited me to. Last week, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Pontypridd feels strangely primed for death. The forests that surround the town are sinister, the type of place that you could scream and only the sheep would hear. I always used to joke with my mother that I was one dog walk away from getting chopped up, a joke that became less funny after what happened. Growing up, it seemed as if everybody I knew had a story about a near miss or how so-and-so's father had known somebody who had found a bag of bones. One of my first memories when I was around seven or eight was being unable to go to a shop on the corner to get my favourite magazine, Angelina Ballerina, because a man had been stabbed to death outside of our home. At night, Pontypridd streets are largely empty, except for strange men staggering from pub to pub. There's also an unexplainable fog. The town that is most famous for its old bridge, Pontypridd means the bridge of the earthen house, where many lives have been lost to suicide. The BBC drama practically writes itself. Just cast Kelly MacDonald as the no-nonsense police detective and you're almost there. In 2015, my town saw its most famous killing. This one even got us our own episode of the TV documentary Murder Town. I'll start at the end. In April of that year, police officers were sent to question Christopher May, who had been a butcher for 20 years at his flat, after complaints of a foul smell. One of the officers described it as gone-off meat or food. Another compared it to cat's urine. When they pulled back the shower curtain to investigate, they found pairs of dismembered arms and legs. Asked where the rest of the body was, May replied casually that some of her is in the cupboard and some of it is at the drain at Pontypridd RFC. That drain would later become the location of boozy gatherings in my teenage years. Meet me at the drain, you know, the one where they found the fingers. What's shocking is just how easily May found his victim. She walked into the skinny dog alone. It had been recommended to her by the barmaid in my local pub. 
She was so drunk that she was refused alcohol after falling off her chair twice and somehow still walked out on May's arm. Within a few hours, neighbours heard loud bangs, which they put down to a drunken fall. 47-year-old Tracy Woodward was dismembered while Westlife's Flying Without Wings was playing in the background. Murder may be the most extreme symptom, but poor mental health is definitely the disease. I'm 24 and I don't have enough fingers to count how many friends and friends of friends that I've lost of suicide. In a town not far from mine, Bridgend, 26 people committed suicide in two years. Most were male, many knew each other and hardly any left notes. All by one died of hanging. In 2020, a woman stabbed and bludgeoned a pensioner with two wine bottles and a fire extinguisher in the local co-op when he intervened to stop her from killing others. Zara Radcliffe had only been released from a psychiatric ward a few months before. She had stopped taking her medication because she was prescribed the wrong pills and had sought help just hours before the attack, claiming that voices in her head were telling her to kill or be killed. The wife of the victim was found waiting in the car outside. She had dementia and was confused why her husband was taking so long to do their weekly shop. Lots of people in Wales suffer from poor mental health. I don't know what it is about Pontypridd in particular that makes its inhabitants so murderous. I've always found it a very friendly place to the right people, but walk into a local pub with a different accent or a strange scent and we can sniff you out pretty quickly. Maybe it's this insularity that drives people mad. That was Cara Kennedy. And finally, Oscar Edmondson. In 1957, the BBC removed the head of the Russian service. Anatole Goldberg was by all accounts a remarkable broadcaster, tasked with coordinating, producing and narrating the BBC's radio output to the USSR at one of the most volatile periods of the Cold War. Internal reports praised his navigation of the complications of Russian programming, so why was he demoted? The answer lies in the long history of British government interference in the World Service. Today, harmony reigns between the state and the service. The government announced a one-off £20 million payment to the World Service in last week's updated integrated review. Yet last year, foreign language broadcasting was facing a £28 million cut after the licence fee freeze. The message is confusing. Is the World Service superfluous or a vital adjunct of British diplomacy? Goldberg's story makes an intriguing case for its indispensability. Leaping through his transcripts from the 1950s, it's easy to see the revolutionary potential of radio broadcasting. In his notes by our Observer series... Goldberg took up the call to tackle the proliferation of misinformation by Russian state media. He spoke of the virtues of the democratic system and Britain's position as its originator, a nation with sovereign institutions run by the people for the people. This would be routinely contrasted with the Soviet election, branded a checkup from below by one high-up Soviet functionary. Open quotes. We know that as regards to political parties, there is no choice. There exists only one political party, which means that at a Soviet election, the party element is not taken into account and a checkup from below is impossible. Close quotes. Born in St. Petersburg in 1910, Goldberg left the country shortly after the October Revolution and moved to London in 1936, where he began working for the BBC Monitoring Service and then on to the Russian service at the end of the war. He was an outsider who employed his dual nationality as a Russian and naturalised Brit to present an authentic account of a refugee's journey towards capitalist enlightenment and invited the listener on a similar journey. Central to this was giving the impression that his appreciation came from close study of Britain rather than from instinctive knowledge and could therefore be learned by anyone. He was the Russian people's envoy on British soil, a convert, dissenter and missionary. While the Information Research Department 
the now disbanded propaganda wing of the Foreign Office, mistook his mild-mannered diplomacy for ambivalence, Goldberg's ability to influence his audience is laid bare in a letter found in the BBC archives. Open quotes. Every evening you are present among many families. The sound of your voice is familiar to them as that of members of the family. Once after a long period of jamming, we heard your voice once more. We were so delighted to hear that you were alive and well that we drank to your health that same evening. Close quotes. Such a strong or even familial attachment to a broadcaster was not atypical. Listening to the BBC required commitment. Remember that to tune into foreign language radio was to take your life into your own hands. The Russian authorities made constant attempts to jam enemy radio stations, and listening was an outlawed pastime punishable by imprisonment. Many abstained, scared that their children would hear, and accidentally let slip at school that their parents were conspiring against the communist state. But for some, the opportunity to escape the echo chamber of Russian state media was irresistible with radio a unique and tantalisingly democratised method of information sharing that required only a cheap receiver and a crude knowledge of how to avoid the jammers. There are even accounts of senior Russian army officials retiring to their quarters and tuning into the BBC. A 1979 monograph on the BBC, the first to be published in Russia, directly addressed Goldberg's success developing deep relationships with some of those in rural USSR, outlining his soft conversational tone and characterising him as a partner in conversation with his own radio face and human features. In his Telegraph obituary, one Russian listener is quoted describing him as an old and close friend. The response in the UK was less favourable, and the Foreign Office grew increasingly concerned by Goldberg's coverage. They didn't share his view that slow revolution in the USSR would come about by reliably informing the Russian intelligentsia, and began to tire of the diplomatic way that he managed government directives. Their concerns manifested in what became a bout of British McCarthyism, an FO charge sheet released to the public in 1999 demonstrates this red panic, accusing Goldberg of an, open quotes, attitude more in accord with a dissident form of doctrinaire Marxism than with British feeling, close quotes. An MI5 investigation was also opened against the wider culture of communist sympathy in the BBC and claimed Goldberg was, open quotes, a Jew who controls the selection of programmes and is a communist, close quotes. The Spectator, echoing the concerns of the Foreign Office, dialed up the heat on Goldberg and published a letter from Peter Wills, a fellow of New College Oxford, in July 1957, accusing the service of moral compromise and appeasement and having an, open quotes, esoteric right-wing Marxist point of view, close quotes. Goldberg's transcripts are a window into this souring relationship. Around 1956, passive-aggressive handwritten notes started to appear on the back of his broadcast, reminding him to, open quotes, give priority to the projection of Western civilizations, and secondly, to debunking the Soviet system, close quotes. The BBC World Service has always been treated as a political tool, a weapon of foreign policy, often to the detriment of its journalistic integrity. The commitment in the integrated review to protect, open quotes, all 42 World Service language services, close quotes, is a welcome sign that services including the Persian, Arabic and Chinese could all be saved. These have been crucial in informing local populations and acting as a guide through geopolitical flashpoints. It also demonstrates a change of language, with the World Service officially included in Britain's diplomatic mission to respond to a contested and volatile world. There is still, however, no indication whether this commitment will save the 382 employees set to lose their jobs this year. As a new wave of moral panic about the impartiality of the BBC envelops the state broadcaster, it's important to stop and consider the cost of our probing and penny-pinching. The price we pay is losing indispensable diplomats like Goldberg. That was Oscar Edmondson. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed these articles, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>